Managing your law practice can be challenging. Marketing, time management, attracting clients, and all the things besides the cases that you need to do that aren't billable. Welcome to this edition of the Unbillable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast. This is where you'll get the information you need from expert guests and host Christopher Anderson, here on Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Unbillable Hour. I am your host, Christopher Anderson, and today's episode is about, well, it's about a lot of different things. It seems to be the theme lately. Uh, We're talking really about expanding your law firm's horizons, about looking for new revenue streams, about adapting, pivoting to what is working and away from things that aren't working. It's about new client acquisition and sales, but uh, really just about positioning your firm in light of the changes we're seeing in the economy and the demands uh, for legal services, which are still there, like in case there's any doubt, um, as a result um, of the changes that are going on, not just because of the COVID-19 pandemic, which uh, we're recording this in July, um, so we're still right in the thick of it, but also the government's and other people's responses to it um, that are also affecting lots of businesses, lots of people, and of course, lots of law firms. So the title today is Pivoting to Help People, and my guests are Jenny Castellanos and Garrick Persley, both of DeNova Review, and we'll learn more about them in a minute. But before we get started, it's time to do a little business. I want to say thank you to the sponsors that make this show possible and for giving us the opportunity to spend this time together. Alert Communications. If any law firm is looking for call, intake, or retainer services available 24-7-365, just call 866-827-5568. Scorpion is the leading provider of marketing solutions for the legal industry. With nearly 20 years of experience serving attorneys, Scorpion can help you grow your practice. Learn more at scorpionlegal.com. Law Clerk, where attorneys go to hire freelance lawyers. Visit lawclerk.legal to learn how to increase your productivity and your profits by working with talented freelance lawyers. LawYaw provides end-to-end document automation for solo, small, and mid-sized practices. Save time and avoid mistakes with documents that you draft over and over again. Learn more at LawYaw.com, and that's L-A-W-Y-A-W.com. Today's episode of the Unbillable Hour, again, is pivoting to help people. And I am pleased to introduce my guests one more time, Jenny Castellanos. Actually, there will be a couple more times <laughs> this time again. And Garrick Persley. Jenny is a visionary combining law and a groundbreaking business model that is helping law firms across the country scale and flex with the times. She is the founder and CEO of DeNovo Review. Jenny comes to this business as an experienced civil litigator and appellate lawyer. Her business is a national provider of managed attorneys aimed at supporting and helping law firms and legal departments throughout the United States to scale their law practice by providing high-quality, experienced attorneys for complex litigation and appellate research, drafting and courtroom work, and other things. Garrick works with Jenny at DeNova Review as the Chief Strategy Officer and Chief Marketing Officer, and is also the Director of DeNovo Learning. He also worked with two federal judges in Washington, litigated also with a law firm in Dallas, and he's also even taught complex litigation. So lots of litigation talent being applied to the business of law. And it gives me great pleasure once again to introduce and bring to the show Jenny and Garrick. Welcome to the Unbillable Hour. Thank you for having us, Chris. It's really a pleasure and honor to be on here. Good to be with you, Chris. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure to have both of you. So Jenny, just to to you, uh, what since you founded DeNovo Review, yeah, we talked about you worked as a lawyer in, and did some litigation. Maybe you can expand on that. But talk about what 
from that experience brought you to want to start a business that's become a national provider of managed attorneys to law firms all over the place? And what, you know, why, why did you move from practicing to helping other law firms and helping lawyers connect with them? Well, it was around 2012 and I'm sitting in an office, a defense firm, and I'm working 10 to 12 hour days, not including the commute to and from. And I realized that there was a real problem with the current workforce model and the way firms were allocating their resources, people. And I thought, well, there has to be a different way. There has to be a better solution. And I started to look at the billable hour requirements and and realizing that nobody was factoring in the unbillable time, right? The commute to and from work, the lunchtime, and the energy that requires that is required to be able to show up in the courtroom and be present or do the research and writing. One day I was talking to a a mentor of mine who's actually the co-founder of Subway, Fred DeLuca. And I said, Fred, I have this idea. I have this idea of creating a legal research and writing company and providing a much needed solution for law firms to one, bring more productivity to the workplace and also reduce costs. And I guess also, bring a happier workplace for, for lawyers working. And how long ago was that? So we started in 2012 and we incorporated in 2013. And uh, Chris, when I opened the company, people looked at me with four eyes. You know, <laughs> this was pre-Uber, right? So the, the idea of having an Uber for law firms or a different workforce model was, you know, pretty much a shock to our legal industry, I think. Yeah. And I think we'll be talking during the show about how probably more than ever now people are seeing the wisdom and uh, need for it. Um, And, you know, everybody's gotten more used to hiring on a gig basis, but uh, we'll get there. But I want to just bring Garrick in. Also, um, Garrick, how long have you been working with DeNovo? What what brought you out of legal practice to this uh, enterprise? Well, I've been with DeNovo about two years, and uh, I didn't actually come out of practice. I came out of academia, which is an even okay. stranger trick that you don't <laughs> see that that often. Uh, you know, I was tenured at Florida State, and uh, before that, I did uh, complex litigation and clerked for some judges. And in my practice, we did antitrust suits and patent abuse suits and things like that. So I had some experience with with what Jenny's talking about, with what it's like to uh, be part of that daily, go into the office, punch in, punch out. Of course, I was working about 90 to 100 hours a week there with lots of travel. But what I found when I was a professor is that I, at least, I don't want to speak for others, but I was giving law students advice on how to get a job. That was the advice I was given when I graduated in 2004. And after the housing crisis in 08, it started to become clear in that sort of trickle up way that eventually academics become aware that that advice wasn't appropriate anymore for what the market was like. And so when I had an opportunity to relocate to Nashville and uh, take a step away from academia, I decided that I needed to get out and, and find out what the new world of law practice is like and what it is that these students, uh, when they graduate, are, are actually going through and what lo- young lawyers are having to deal with. And what I discovered is that what we do at DeNova Review is really sort of the wave of the future. And you know, we provide attorneys in a world where the standard career path of, you know, you graduate in the top 10%, you join a top 100 law firm, you work there for 15 years, you make partner. That's just not the world anymore. Yeah. And we provide lawyers with an opportunity to make a living and do well without having to try and conform to a model that just doesn't fit anymore. 
Cool. All right. Well, so let's talk about that world because the world, of course, that we're in right now is different and changing. Um, it seems like, you know, and I know there's going to be some stuff that we record here because this show probably won't go on the air for several weeks, that things will be changed again. I mean, every couple of weeks, it seems we're in another new world. Um, we've been, on the show, we've spent a good deal of time talking already about the effects of COVID-9 epidemic, uh, pandemic on how lawyers have been able to continue helping their clients. So what I want to do is like just get a brief moment of your interpretation of where we are, what you're seeing from your vantage point, since you're in touch with law firms, you're helping deliver services to them. From your vantage point, how the economic downturn is affecting the law firms that you deal with. But then after that, I'm going to want to change the script a little bit and really start talking about the future and the opportunities that are coming. But first, what are you seeing as the changes? We have several clients that have actually reached out to us. Some are at a complete standstill but most of them have been really progressive minded and forward thinking and they're using this time to lay the groundwork for areas of law that they're expanding. So we have law firms that are expanding into bankruptcy, a lot of firms that are are learning about business interruption and they're preparing their workforce team and their internal structure. Now, obviously there are firms that run like a law firm, right? They run like a lawyer instead of a business. And so those lawyers, I think they're having a lot of trouble right now, to be quite honest. They're not prepared. Their firms are not agile and they're not ready to adapt. And they're going to be faced with, with having to really rethink their business model and their focus. Well, let's hope that some of them are listening because uh, that, you know, this is the show about law firm business. The Unbillable Hour really helps these, you know, a lot of small law firms, solo law firms and smaller law firms are, are our listeners. And I think there's several out there that are indeed stuck like the way you're talking about. So let's change the conversation a little bit. You said you let's talk about what the other law firms are doing and give some ideas for these small law firms that might be feeling stuck about what they can do. What do you see as the litigation booms that are either a result of or that are just going to be fueled by the coronavirus litigation, the coronavirus mitigation. What do you see as litigation booms coming that law firms should be getting ready for? You know, what we tend to see when there are major crises and, you know, the housing crisis, another example, is that Lawyer, some lawyers are on one side of the crisis and run out of work and other lawyers are on the other side and are suddenly inundated with work more than they can do. And that's certainly what we're going to see here too. Our researchers keep their fingers on the pulse of what's new and growing out there and what's come to our attention. And some of these are going to be relatively obvious, like Jenny mentioned bankruptcy. So of course, businesses that are suffering the effects of a major you know, catastrophic economic downturn are going to need bankruptcy assistance. And I think we're probably going to see a record number of bankruptcy filings in the weeks, months, and years to come. But other things to think about that we've been keeping an eye on are workers' claims, right? So think here about the restaurant worker in the back of the house who comes down with coronavirus because of another infected member of the staff, or the folks working in the Amazon fulfillment centers where they can't actually judging from their account of events. They can't properly socially distance. Of course, Amazon disputes that to some extent. Um, Another category like that. Yeah. So claims by workers who, because of the workplace environment are exposed to coronavirus and become infected or exposed to an increased risk and increased danger of infection. Meatpacking comes to mind. And in addition to meatpacking, think of other manufacturing line type facilities sure. where, where the sort of CDC guidelines for safety may not be able physically to be implemented fully. 
Another area that we're keeping an eye on is university suits. Hmm. Um, You've got pretty much every major college and university in the country is trying to figure out what to do in the fall. You know, some are very tuition revenue driven and they just feel like they absolutely have got to open on campus learning in the fall. But the faculty are hesitant about coming back to campus. All right. So for example, at Penn State, 1,100 faculty members signed a letter to the administration saying we should have the right to choose whether we're going to return to a classroom environment or if because of safety concerns, we want to stay at home and teach remotely. We'll have to see whether that goes anywhere. Most professor contracts, and I can tell you this from personal experience, don't really give you that option, uh, even tenure contracts. But there's also the student side, right? And the students are on exactly the flip side of the faculty. So this is what makes this an interesting potential tension. They want the on-campus experience or else they don't want to pay full tuition because they think there's a qualitative difference between going to class online and being in the classroom. So you'll see Harvard Law School, for example, announced that they're going to be 100% online in the fall and already a member of their current class has sued them. And it's a class action uh, because they don't want to pay full tuition for that, Chris. Yeah, no, it makes sense. You know, it's kind of funny. The uh, a scene is coming into my brain from uh, a movie. I don't know if you will recall it called Weird Science, where uh, like there's three scenes actually during the course of the show where one person leaves their big giant tape recorder to take tape record the uh, lecture so that they don't have to be in class. And then the next scene is there's the class is almost like 75% is tape recorders and you know the lecturer is talking to them. And the last scene is there's a hundred percent tape recorders in the audience. And in fact, the lecturer is also a tape recorder playing. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, this kind of brings that to us. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. We're talking with uh, Jenny Castellanos and Garrick Persley of Denoa Review um, about the opportunities for law firms um, and what really business is coming down the pike that they can take advantage of and really help people and instead of getting stuck and uh, not helping people, which is what we don't want them to do. But first, let's hear from our sponsors about how they can help you. No one cites routine drafting as the reason they chose to become a lawyer, but that's where a lot of time goes for solo practitioners and small firms. LawYaw can help you transform your existing Word documents into reusable templates with no coding required. Save time and avoid errors with intuitive features like conditional logic. Use a tool that empowers your experience and expertise. Learn more at LawYaw.com, and that's L-A-W-Y-A-W.com. Law Clerk is where attorneys go to hire freelance lawyers. Whether you need a research memo or a complicated appellate brief, Our network of freelance lawyers have every level of experience and expertise. Sign up is free, and there are no monthly fees. Only pay the flat fee price you set. Use rebate code UNBILLABLE to get a $100 Amazon gift card when you complete your next project. Learn more at lawclerk.legal. And welcome back. We're still talking with Jenny Castellanos and Garrick Persley of DeNova Review. And we've been talking about, uh, you know, changing the script a little bit about from how are law firms being impacted by the current coronavirus pandemic to what opportunities are coming down the pike that law firms should be paying attention to. And Garrick and Jenny both are seeing in their own customers from DeNova Review how some of their clients, law, the law firms that they work with, are pivoting and getting, and even more important, what I loved hearing what Jenny was saying is to using this time to get ready for some of the stuff that's coming down the pike. And some aren't. And uh, Garrick gave us a couple of ideas. So I want to kind of continue to riff on that. 
but ask you, should firms be considering, because you mentioned something about workers. We talked about university and faculty. We talked about people on lines and meatpacking plants and other lines and Amazon. But should firms be considering about how workers comp and COVID-19 interact? And is there an opportunity in those types of cases? So there is opportunity, but let me let you in on something that I don't think everybody's thinking about here first. I used to work with a guy at the University of Toledo who's one of the leading labor law experts in the country, and he took a look at all the workers' comp statutes in all the states, and most of them require that your injury be characteristic of the work environment for it to fall within a workers' comp statute. And for most work environments, infection with a deadly pandemic virus is not actually characteristic of the risks you face on a day-to-day basis in your work environment. Think again about the dishwasher in the restaurant, right? That's not a standard risk of being a dishwasher. Now, the obvious exclusion here is healthcare workers. So if you work in a hospital, yeah. And keep in mind, if your injury doesn't fall within workers' comp, you can sue in a civil suit. And so you don't have to deal with the administrative process and potentially limitations Mm, on, on recovery and so on. So in most states there will be large classes of workers who are injured by this pandemic and don't fall within workers' comp statutes. So there's opportunity in two senses here, right? For your standard PI firm, personal injury firm, you can go and seek out those cases that don't fall within workers' comp. But if you want to get in the workers' compensation business, it can be lucrative, but you've got to do those cases in volume, all right? And so here is where I want to call back to something that Jenny said. There's going to be a glut of these claims in the near future. There's not going to be enough lawyers to handle all of them. So if you want to get into workers' comp, you can be swimming in clients, but you've got to either already have a workers' comp department with the expertise in the statutory systems that you'll deal with, or you're going to need to bring one in that's you know already staffed with those attorneys and already has the work processes to handle volume. That's how you make workers' comp profitable. Yeah, this is not something to dabble. Right. And so, I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing that we do at DeNovo is we, we give you a turnkey new division uh, for your firm if oh, you wow. want to get into something like that. Fantastic. That's really cool. So you set up workers' comp on a volume basis or the opportunity for PI lawyers who may not be thinking of infection as a personal injury, but the availability perhaps of direct remedy. But so let me let me turn that around then. What about representing businesses? What about business liability for public exposure? How's that going to work? This this is a big question and it's a complicated one. So I hate to harp on this example, but because the poor restaurants are suffering, but think about that again, right? Now think about the front of the house, the dining room. Right. It's not really economically feasible for restaurants to, if you're not wearing a mask, they kick you out, right? It doesn't seem like we're going to actually see that as an economic reality. Plus, you know, you can still get a risk of infection even with people wearing masks. So the real question is, if I go to a restaurant, sit down in the dining room, have a meal and get infected with the coronavirus, can I sue the restaurant? And that question is about the standard of care. What is the duty of the restaurant regarding safety precautions in that situation. Now, you think about slippery floors, for example, right? The uh, business is required to exercise reasonable care to be sure that you don't slip, fall down, and break your arm, whatever it is. That's probably the same standard that's going to apply here, a standard of reasonable care. But what we need to know and what lawyers are going to be trying to hash out in the coming months is, 
what counts as reasonable in this context? Is it following the CDC guidelines? Is it following guidelines issued by state or municipal authorities? And what about, like we talked about earlier, sort of intrinsically dangerous situations where those guidelines can't be followed, like an assembly line, where social distancing may not be enforceable? Yeah, lots of work around that. So if, if you represent businesses or you know, if you want to you know, kind of pivot a little bit to, and it's not just restaurants, like you said, it's just like all all public facing businesses, any business that has a front of the house is going to have the public interested in possible liability for public exposure. And then of course, even businesses that don't have a front of the house, if they're not able to maintain appropriate guidelines in the back of the house, they're going to have these same issues. That's right. And when you, uh, another thing to keep an eye on here is state legislative involvement. And in fact, it's possible that we would see federal legislative involvement too to immunize businesses against this kind of liability. Sure. Yeah. So let me give you one example. Wisconsin passed a statute recently immunizing, you know, hospitals, clinics, and manufacturers of personal protective equipment against liability for infection. That's pretty limited, but there there's a big push on in a lot of state houses and on Capitol Hill to get broader immunity legislation passed to keep businesses from having to get sort of like the second sucker punch after the big punch they've taken from all the closures. So that's something to keep an eye on. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. All right. What about um, the other one that the kind of the thing that you said that kind of perked my ears up is when you were talking about Harvard, you said the word class action. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I kind of chuckled to myself a little bit because it's a law class and it's class action. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and of course, you know, you teach your Harvard students too well, and here they are already jumping on um, a class action lawsuit against the university. But surely we're going to be seeing other classes that are arising because you know, there's a lot of not to use a term of art, but because uh, this is the business of law, but similarly situated people, is there an opportunity for law firm businesses to take a, to take advantage of to really move into the space to keep helping people by looking at class actions that are arising as a result of the pandemic? Sure. Uh, and the Harvard thing is, it's almost just too perfect to be true, isn't it? Um, almost too perfect, a sort of encapsulation of what's going on to be real. Let me mention three areas where I think we're going to see a boom in class litigation. And by the way, the ABA a month ago predicted that there was going to be a boom in class litigation over the coronavirus. And since then, dozens of class suits have been filed. So two areas we've already discussed are worker suits and university suits. So the worker suit class actions that you likely will see will be the ones against large companies. Walmart and Amazon here would be prototypical examples. And we know that both of those companies are perennial targets for class litigation. Sure. But you're going to have, just like you said, an enormous number of similarly situated workers. If it turns out that infection by coronavirus doesn't fall within workers' comp statutes, then the door is open for them to join together as a class and sue the Walmart for you know, whatever their view is regarding whether the safety procedures were inadequate and in what ways they were inadequate. University suits, you'll see a couple of different kinds. Let's leave aside the faculty for the moment. But, you know, so imagine the University of Miami undergraduate students who paid their on-campus gym access and dining hall fees in the spring semester. That's you know, a straightforward common injury to a large group of students if the university is refusing to refund those fees because they were unable to access those facilities while the university was shut down. So we will see that kind of thing. 
But I want to mention one other thing, which is business interruption insurance. Yeah, I was about to about to ask you like with all this because these you know we're talking about how the businesses that are operating are being exposed, but of course we're also dealing with huge amounts of businesses that aren't operating that either can't operate, you know, that started operating again. And I mean, like the, the, this breaks your heart, like to see all the restaurants with the reopenings that happened, they kind of got re-geared up. They got their places cleaned, deep, deep cleaned. And then, you know, two weeks later, sorry, we're closed again. And their business is getting interrupted. What's, what's the opportunity there for law firms to help with business interruption and to work on that business interruption insurance angle? It's kind of an odd thing because normally this would be a niche subject, business interruption yeah. insurance, but I mean, it is front and center now, and it's a huge area of potential growth for law firms that want to get involved. So let me talk about class action treatment first, and then I want to just mention a couple of trends that we're seeing when it comes to business interruption claims. So usually an insurance dispute is very specific. It's normally a state law issue and it's about what your policy says and what happened to you. And it's figured out on a case-by-case basis. Other things that are relevant are, you know, what did the adjuster look at when they decided whether it was covered or not? So it's very individuated usually. But this is a unique situation for any number of reasons, but among them this. Massive numbers of businesses were shut down across the economy due to a single incident, right? The landing on American soil of the coronavirus and the subsequent shutdown orders issued by governments covering a large geographic and economic territory. So you can already see where I'm going with this, right? There's going to be big clusters of similarly situated businesses And all you have to do if you're an enterprising class action minded lawyer is go out and find, you know, 500 restaurants, all of whom had a standard, you know, travelers, for example, business interruption policy. And then all of a sudden, what seems to be an individual inquiry is the same for everybody because they've all got the same policy language. The loss was caused to all of them by exactly the same thing. It seems like class action treatment would in fact, be appropriate in those circumstances. And when you think of it, you know, as a former professor, you know, I always like to think about the reasons for legal structures. And one of the reasons to have class actions in the first place is to level the playing field between the plaintiff side and the defense side. And in this situation where, you know, you've got the mom and pop restaurant that's family owned versus traveler's insurance or whatever it might be, that's, that's a pretty big disparity in power where, and that's exactly what the class action device is supposed to come in and help with. Two other trends quickly to mention on business interruption though. First, what you might expect insurance companies to be telling their brokers right now is deny, 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 deny every claim. Okay. It's sort of the stereotype about insurance companies, right? They always say no the first time. And that is happening with some, but interestingly, some of them in the broker broker publications that we read are taking a more sort of wait and see approach. Well, this is a unique situation and there's probably going to be litigation and there might be legislation and things could change. So, you know, tell your policyholders to file their claims, even if they don't think they're covered. And I think that's fascinating and definitely something to keep an eye on. The, the other trend, and this is a more litigation focused trend Most of these policies require physical damage to the property, okay, to trigger coverage. Okay. And there's a there's a question because it's it's a virus and nobody's building is burning down. So, you know, is there physical damage? 
but they also tend to cover you if you experience physical loss of the business. All right. And so initially back in February, March, when people were exploring these coverage issues, they were focused on, well, the virus is a physical thing. It gets on surfaces. Let's characterize that as physical damage. But the focus now is shifting more towards looking at the fact that people who are subject to these closure orders are losing the ability to operate their business for a chunk of time. So, you know, if anybody listening is is already digging into these cases, that's probably a trend you're seeing, but it's certainly something strategically to keep an eye on as well. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And so what I'd like to do here is ask you about how, because this sounds, I mean, this sounds fascinating, like a huge opportunity to help a lot of people, a lot of, like you said, more, lots of small mom and pop businesses, whether they be restaurants or others, and how small law firms, you know, are also being affected can uh, help with that. But before we do that, I do want to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we come back, I'm going to be asking you about how smaller firms can manage these kind of large volume types cases and continue to stay in business themselves. But first, a word from our sponsors. As the largest legal-only call center in the U.S., Alert Communications helps law firms and legal marketing agencies with new client intake. Alert captures and responds to all leads 24-7-365 as an extension of your firm in both English and Spanish. Alert uses proven intake methods, customizing responses as needed, which earns the trust of clients and improves client retention. To find out how Alert can help your law office, call 866-827-827. 5568 or visit alertcommunications.com forward slash LTN. Now more than ever, an effective marketing strategy is one of the most important things for your firm. Scorpion can help. With nearly 20 years of experience serving the legal industry, Scorpion has proven methods to help you get the high value cases you deserve. Join thousands of attorneys across the country who have turned to Scorpion for effective marketing and technology solutions. For a better way to grow your practice, visit scorpionlegal.com. And we're speaking with Jenny Castellanos. Uh, she's the CEO and founder of DeNova Review and Garrick Persley, uh, who's the chief strategy officer, chief marketing officer of DeNova Review. And we've been talking a like, really fascinating conversation about the opportunities for law firms that are actually being created by the virus and by the businesses' interactions and people's interactions with the viruses and the pandemic. Um, when we left for the break, we were talking about the possible class actions to do with uh, first-party insurance, really, uh, with uh, with with people needing to make claims on business interruption insurance, and uh, and that's where we kind of left it. And I said what I wanted when we came back with all the things you're talking about, uh, Garrick and Jenny. They really sound fascinating and kind of get my juices going, but a lot of it sounds like maybe that a small law firm would be afraid to tackle some of this. So can we talk a little bit about how firms can manage these kind of larger volume, larger big picture cases and get in on something that helps people, but also helps continue their law firm? Definitely, Chris. Oh, we actually work with a lot of small law firms that have a local footprint. And yeah. so our clients have actually been reaching out to us and, and asking us, you know, what should we do? And so every firm is handling it differently. And it also is very subject matter specific, right? So is this a family law firm? Is this a commercial litigation law firm? Or are they property insurance? What sure. we're seeing is property insurance firms are taking the opportunity to add business interruption insurance as an additional area of law that they're covering and they're adding it to their website and other firms are reaching out to marketing companies and casting a very wide net and seeing what they bring in and of course now that that's 
first talking about getting the cases in the door. And we see that right now, that's where everybody's focused. What's going to happen is when all these cases are signed up, the firms are either going to do two things. They have to rush to train their teams. And we're seeing a lot of attendance in our general learning series where firms want to get educated on business interruption insurance. They want to get educated on bankruptcy. They're getting in those CLE credits. And then we have other firms that are like, listen, we're going to keep our task force really focused to what they know. And we're going to go ahead and bring an outside task force to, to manage this new caseload coming in. And it's, it's interesting because uh, the ABA Journal has highlighted the need for surge staffing in, in several articles. I was reading one in 2005, and, I, and I'm going to quote it. It says, welcome to the end of splurge and the reality of surge. And I think that's what business-minded firms are doing. What does that mean, the end of splurge? Well, I think splurging, right, the traditional business model from law firms were to bring associates and train them and incur the cost yep. of the training and keep them for several years, even though they weren't necessarily on partnership track. And then what happens after three to five years, they leave the firm and now they've got to start all over. So let's stop splurging and really focus on, on a search task force that's really going to be targeted in, in this particular area of law. Okay. So, so being more flexible and just keeping a core team on that. So is that, is that something that even the smaller law firms can do? They can really bring in to be able to staff up, for instance, to be able to manage a class action like this? How, how will that work? Most definitely. Uh, what we see law firms doing and what we work with them is they might bring on an of-counsel relationship through our network of attorneys. They might bring a co-counsel to actually spearhead and, and be the first or second trial attorney on their case. Yeah. And um, you could, they just start off by signing up the cases and then structuring the, the attorney team based on the relationship with the client and what the particular matter needs. And does this work with all these different practice areas we've been talking about? It's like, can a law firm surge family law? Can a law firm surge bankruptcy? Can they surge? That's a, that's a really we, good question, Chris. Yeah. And, and there's some areas of law that really lends itself to yeah. delegation and outsourcing. And, and those are the ones, and, and obviously it depends on the the procedure that the firm has already developed. Some firms don't have the workflow process in place, but but let's identify some areas that, that really lend itself. So right now, uh, DeNovo has a coverage team and a writing team, and they're managing 150 personal injury cases in the litigation department. The attorney has completely offloaded that department. Mm -hmm. So that's one particular area of law. Another area of law is property insurance and business interruption insurance. Why? You have to interpret the coverage opinion and provide an opinion on whether there's coverage and the viability of the lawsuit. Right, right. It doesn't really depend that much on the client. It's really policy driven. Family law is a little bit trickier, I think, sure. to, be, to be quite honest. Uh, family law is very factually intensive. It requires a high touch relationship with your client, but the appeals in that area of law is, is, is very- Oh, sure, yeah, that makes, that makes more sense. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So listen, as we come to the end of the show, um, we've been talking about a lot of these changes and opportunities that are coming. The last thing I wanted to ask is kind of, you know, put your, get your crystal ball out. And what about what's changing now is becoming permanent? Like what, what are going to be some of the permanent or at least semi-permanent effects that we're going to be dealing with for a long time after the pandemic moves into the history books? See, I love this issue because I feel like finally the future is here. Yeah. You know, the law firms were traditionally minded and very resistant to change have had 
no choice but to embrace and take on technology and different workforce models. Attorneys that thought that it was impossible to work from home are now conducting trials and depositions from a Zoom session. So I think what we're going to see here that's going to remain permanent to the legal field is embracing technology, embracing unique workforce models, and even we might even see that networking turns into virtual networking instead of going and flying across the country to Vegas sure. to, yeah. to network. So I'm excited about that. I'll miss Vegas, but uh. <laughs> I, I miss Vegas too. But yeah, well, maybe Vegas will figure out how to come back as well. Well, that's super. <laughs> um, listen, we've covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time, and I think there's a good chance that some of our listeners' heads are spinning around and around. So if they want to follow up with you, touch base with you, learn more about what we've been talking about, ask questions about something they missed or didn't quite understand. Garrick, Jenny, how can they get in touch with your business, with you guys to follow up? Well, first of all, our email is Jenny with a G, that's G-E-N-N-Y at com. The company line is 305-925-0229. And our website is www com, just like the standard of review on appeal. Let me mention, let me mention this too. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, yeah. DeNovo Learning has a Facebook group. It's facebook.com slash group slash DeNovo Learning, which is all one word. Yeah. And if you ping us with a request to join there, we have a news feed that is constantly populated with things about the issues that we've discussed today and a lot of other stuff too. Thanks, Garrick. And thank you, Jenny. All right. And that wraps up this edition of the Abilable Hour. Um, I thank everybody for listening. Our guests today have been Jenny Castellanos. She's the CEO and founder of DeNova Review. And Garrick Persley, DeNova Review's Chief Strategy Officer and Chief Marketing Officer. And they gave you great ways to get in touch with them um, should you have any other questions. Of course, this is Christopher Anderson. And I look forward to seeing you next month with another great guest as we learn more about topics that help us build the law firm business that works for you. Remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. Thanks for joining us. We'll speak again soon. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the Unbillable Hour, the Law Practice Advisory Podcast. Join us again for the next edition, right here with Legal Talk Network. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app.